Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Lena Sarvastava. Lena is a strategist, advocate, producer, writer, traveler, founder of the Center for Transformational Change. Most importantly, her most important title, at least for the purpose of this conversation, however, is Deep Long Abiding Friend. I have known Lena for years and years and years, and she is one of my favoriteest people and someone that I spend extraordinary conversations with. So this recording of the deep dive is really just an opportunity for all of you, the listeners, to get an opportunity to sneak inside the type of conversations that me and Lena routinely have as we rant and rave and about the world and all of its travails. So I'm recording this from, as we were saying, a little bit of cloudy Atlanta. Um, she's in New York and it's a pleasure to have Lena join me on the deep dive. This is her third time on the show. We did a solo episode and then she did a episode with a, another dear friend of mine, Mia White. And now we're doing this one together again. So welcome to the show, Lena, how are you? I'm doing well, Phil, thank you for having me again. I love doing these conversations. I know, this is such a thrill for me. Like it's one thing when you're talking to, you know, someone that you're, you're only familiar with their work, um, you know, because You've asked them to be on the show, but I have no personal relationship with them. Um, however, when I do have those rare opportunities to be in conversation with someone that I do know, it's a, it's, I, take, I take it as an extra special responsibility to make sure that I do your work and your focus justice. So having said that, I want to give you an opportunity to share just a, a little bit of, of where you are with the center because as we mentioned kind of offline, this is kind of a milestone for you, given the sense that it's 15 years of being a social enterprise founder. And that 15 years has come with ups, downs, many lessons learned. So I want to give you a, a moment to kind of frame that for us. Yeah. I mean, it's, I sort of entered this year realizing that I was having an anniversary. You know, I was going to be 15 years of the first time I founded a social enterprise. So that was in 2008, <laughs> right as the market crashed. So that was fun. And it's funny because I'm a little bit of an accidental social entrepreneur. I never really set out to be that. So I was a lawyer and then an executive director of two different nonprofits and interim of another one. And, you know, sort of all of that, all of that experience taught me that what I wanted to do, what I thought should be out in the world didn't exist. Right. So I founded my first social enterprise back in 2008. It was called CL, the Creative Impact and Experience Lab. And I mean, it was a beautiful, I loved my little company. It was this tiny little sort of, you know, boutique. And I think the first time you and I talked on the deep dive, I was just about to sort of wrap that up and, and start the new one. So you've been part of these milestones with me, Phil. And that, that company was, you know, it was, there was something very beautiful and hopeful about it. There was sort of this false sense of security, I think, 
because I founded it like sort of in the Obama era, right? Of the world. It was, I ran it from 2008 until 2021. So 13 years. And it was sort of a, a time when, we, I mean, we still had all, I mean, climate change was happening. We had horrible, you know, indicators in global displacement. We had inequality run rampant. But I think it was, we were all, those of us who do this work were sort of, you know, interested in things like innovation, right? Innovation that was then hijacked by, you know, sort of technology, but we were interested in, in narrative, right? And design and people were experimenting with like human-centered design things. And I think sort of at the 10-year mark of running that company at 2018, I was like, okay, it's a 10-year anniversary. What am I going to do with it? right? It was 2018. It was sort of like right in the middle of Trumpism, the rise of Trumpism, the rise of fascism around the world. And I was like, you know, what am I doing running an innovation studio in the middle of New York City? Even though it was international, all the work that we did with that company was international. Most of the work that I was doing was in, you know, for lack of a better term, global South countries, for example. And the work we were doing was aimed at, you know, using narrative effectively and ethically in the realm of like sort of human rights and international development projects, you know, for advocacy and for program design, for evaluation. And I worked with artists and I worked with NGOs and I worked with agencies and it was like, you know, experimental and fun and agile. And I had all kinds of like freedom to craft a portfolio of projects that made a particular point, right? Which was that community led narrative was an absolute necessity for change. So it was a beautiful time. But in 2018, I was like, <laughs> I've done gorgeous work. We've really, we've been sort of like, you know, making inroads into community and community led narrative and all those kinds of things. And, and yet here we are in the middle of fascism and I'm running this company in New York. And what do I want to do? And I worked with a couple of different business strategists. I pulled them in, you know, because the cobbler's children never have shoes. You can't do your, you cannot do strategy for your own things. So I put and I, I pulled you in, pulled in a couple of other people, and through that work, decided I was going to shut it down. Like I wasn't going to grow it. I wasn't going to try to transform that. I wanted to start anew. And so I ended up spending about three years while I was running that. I was spending three years writing and planning the launch of what I have now, which is Center for Transformational Change. And the focus is slightly different. What I want with this one is more of a focus on social transformation. Uh, like actual transformational change, not incremental change, not progress, but actual wholesale transformation. Like what does that look like? Right. And then how do you use narrative strategy? How do you use storytelling again, ethically and effectively? How do you use leadership process? You know, how do you change who, who is a leader in transformation? How do you change the perception of that? How do you understand who is actually doing that work? What does it look like? How do you support it? And then also like a, an emphasis on community power, right? So power is something that I think we actually have to center, right? In the work that we do. And so it's a move away from, you know, these, I keep calling them Obama era concepts, but like, you know, of social innovation and, you know, human centered design and these things that ultimately became really transactional in a lot of ways. And they were very individualistic kind of frames and very steeped in, the idea of technology-driven or data-driven change. I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-data. But it's like there's something that is not um, animated for me when you just look at that, right? It is extractive, 
right? Too often we can talk a lot, a little bit more about <laughs> the extraction of, you know, technology and and all of those developments, particularly as we're talking about, you know, the, today, you know, we're talking about generative AI and you know things like that. We can talk about that a little bit. But you know, I sort of like picked my head up in 2018 and said, okay, this is it's time. It's time to sort of move on from a methodology base, right, which a lot of us were doing, right to a philosophy based or like sort of a, almost like a power based, you know, framework. Like how do we, how do we make radical transformation through radical community and radical love, right? Like how do we do this? And so that's why I decided I was going to do this. And so I spent three years writing the concept note for that. I went to like, I was very honored to sort of be invited to Bellagio, which is the Rockefeller Foundation's retreat center and spent a month writing this strategic plan, right? In 2019. And um, 2020 came and COVID happened. And so I didn't, I was going to launch it in 2020. I was like, that's not happening. And then, so I launched it in 2021 and I launched it. I mean, and we, we I had a, a team around me and we did a beautiful job launching it, you know, sort of using at that point, social media, which is in collapse now. Right. And like wrote about it and all this kind of stuff. And it was really great and hit the ground running with amazing projects. Right. Like anywhere from I was working with the New Humanitarian. I was working with the Haiti Community Development Fund. I was working with the ICRC in Geneva. I was working on this project called In Plain Sight, which is sort of artist led. So it was like a mix of beautiful projects, all evidencing how transformation happens from in and from community. And I did it for about six months and then my mom got sick. And so I ended up shutting it down. So I ran it. So like sort of planned it for three months and I, and three years. And, and I actually had launched the company on my mom's birthday in 2021. Like it was almost sort of like, you know, a gift to her. My parents have been huge supporters and, you know, they're Indian parents, you know, <laughs> who always expected I would be sort of like, you know, the good Indian doctor. And then when I went to law school, they're like, okay, at least law school, you know, you can be a lawyer, you know? And then I just kept quitting things. And <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> close enough and then I just kept quitting things they're like what is she looking for I'm the youngest child so they were like oh my god you know our little our little youngest child looking for herself but I just knew like I had a vision right I didn't know I had a vision when I kept quitting things but I had a vision and all of a sudden like in the center the thing that I launched on 2020 in you know in 2021 it's like okay this is an instantiation of my vision right this sort of like company that I want to launch that is a hybrid think tank, production studio, innovation lab, all looking at how you catalyze social transformation for, you know, in the realms of migrant rights and refugee rights, climate justice, you know, equity, particularly gender and, and race equity, civic participation, like how, like those wicked problems that we are all dealing with in a post sort of 2014 world. This was like my vision. And all of a sudden I was like, okay, this is it. My, last, my, my first company was my vision, but it was slightly underbaked, shall we say. And the center was like, wait, this is what I want. And this is what I think. This is what I believe the world needs. And so, you know, and my parents have been, despite sort of like being slightly at, at some points confused, extremely supportive. And I'm really lucky, lucky for that. So I launched it on my birthday, sort of as a tribute to her uh, on my mom's birthday. And then the logo is actually based on my dad's name. So my dad is named after a goddess, right? So the, the logo of the company is sort of this ancient, like sort of pre, pre-organized religion symbol that's sort of inspired. So the goddess represents the feminine divine destruction towards justice. 
So I'm like, that's perfect, right? <laughs> so this like, so this company has like has a lot of elements of like family and things like that. And I'd never really done that before. And then mom got sick. And, you know, I was sort of plunged into this, all of us, my entire family were plunged into sort of thing that all like the entire world has been going through like since COVID, right? Mom didn't have COVID, but it was, you know, this sort of like every single family has been touched by something like this. So like, not only are we dealing with sort of you know, the onset of global fascism, authoritarianism, climate change collapse, all this. Now we have a pandemic, which is exacerbating healthcare in this country. And so I ended up shutting the company down, you know, after six months of launching it because I needed just to be, you know, at home with family, yeah, yeah. at home, you know, and helping. And unfortunately, um, we lost her. And I like, I know my voice sounds even right now, it's sort of still kind of reeling, you know, through that for anybody who's listening, who's, you know, sort of lost a parent who, you know, they have a good relationship with, it's primal, right? It's a primal, primal loss. And it's sort of like, it made me question, right? I mean, in, in the aftermath, there was obviously many, many questions, many things that we were sort of dealing with, but on a very personal level and on a very mission level, right? I was like, what am I doing, right? Like, what am I doing? Again, I think, I mean, I have every single belief in, in this company that I'm trying to build that I think really needs to be out there but it's like, you know, I've just, I feel like part of my body has been sheared off, right? Through grief. Grief is a very strange, I'd never really suffered a loss like that. So, you know, grief is very bizarre and it's sort of like, and it was in the middle of collective grief. Like we're all going through, you know, the loss of people, like millions and millions of people, you know, around the world from COVID. And then looking at what's happening with, you know, climate change, it's like, oh, you know, and every single thing, it becomes this very compounded experience. And I want to jump in because I think the grief part of this is is an important part of your personal story and, and arc, you know, because you had, a, you know, these are monumental shifts. Like it's, it's easy to kind of timeline it out, right? To, I had, I started it here, I did this, the thinking, but when you pour yourself into something in, in the way that I know you poured yourself into this and you get it off the ground, right? Like this, you know, I don't know to what extent folks has ever, have ever started anything or created anything, but it is a incredible effort to take something from ideation or inspiration, whatever word you want to use to actual living and breathing in the world, right? Like that is a a monumental task that that requires mental effort, emotional effort, and physical effort, right? Like no one starts something lightly, right? Particularly when resource challenged, right? So maybe there's like tons, like, you know, rich motherfuckers out there who just be starting shit because they got money and it doesn't matter, right? But for right. those of us who don't have that, you know, you got, you calculate this shit out, right? And so I say that to say that the shutting it down after six months, understandable given the circumstances, but these are not decisions that, that, that happen lightly, right? And so that, that grief part of it, right, is something that I'd love for you to, to share more on because it feels so often that as a collective, you know, when you mention things like COVID or, or climate and others, we very seldom give ourselves, whether individually or collectively, an opportunity to properly grieve, right? It, it feels like the motivation is so often to move on, 
right, to kind of get on with it. Because I'd be curious, given that there's deep personal loss in this, there's a business at the center of this, meaning the center, like how how have you been doing with that part of the of the process? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've been trying to give myself time because I think I recognized even even before my own sort of personal loss. I mean, we had sort of experienced a little bit of that. I lost my aunts the year before, so that was like the that was almost like the harbinger of what we were all going to start going to go through. And I think then I realized that time is you know, that's that that ridiculous adage, time heals all things is just so not true. But you need to give yourself time. And this world doesn't allow that, especially, you know, sort of this hyper capitalist Western, you know, sort of like, yes, let's move on, let's get on with it, let's be productive. Right. And I think there are lots of people who throw themselves into work in order to deal with things. And I think that's, I'm not denigrating that, right? People need to be able to deal with loss in the ways that they need to. Having said that, you know, I think because I run my own thing and because I was able to sort of make the decision to set, shut it down, I work there, consultants who work with me right now, but I don't have permanent staff, right? But everybody who I was working with re- was like, do what you need to do. We will, we'll be here when you're ready to come back. And I think that was, that was such a gift. That was such a gift. And it's a gift that most of us don't get. So I am deeply, deeply privileged, right? When it came to like the people I was working with, even the people like in projects were like, you know what, take your time, just take your time. And that is so rare. It's possible because it's the sort of community that I've cultivated around me by design, right? This is the world that I want to see. So I've sort of chosen to work with people who are sort of similarly aligned in that way. But, you know, grief takes very strange twists and turns. So for like one example, this is a very personal example, but I was in, I went to Italy and you and I both have a very deep and personal connection to Italy, right? I hadn't been there since COVID. Like I, I used to go to Italy every year, sometimes twice a year since like 1995, right? So I've been going like pretty much my entire adult life in a lot of ways. And, and I didn't go through the pandemic, but the International Journalism Festival was happening and I was going to be on a panel. I was speaking. It was great. So I'm like, okay, so I'm going to Italy for the first time and, uh, and I'm going to be speaking. This is great. And as soon as I got there, it was almost too much. It was too beautiful. It was too personal. It was too, like, it was too before, right? There was too before the times. And I was like, I have to leave. And I went to the, I went to the festival. I did, the panel was great. I, I will give you the link to that later. It was a panel on decolonizing journalism. It was fantastic. But as soon as that was done, I'm like, okay, I was going to spend some time and like see friends and everything. And I was like, I have to come home, you know? And so that was grief. I just kept thinking about my mom. Cause I would always like go and like find her something like little gift or something. And it was like, I did my professional obligation. You know, I was there, I did it. Did, you know, have the conversations, did the panel, all of that. And that was good, right? That took me out of myself to a certain extent. But then there was that other piece. So it's like, you never know when grief is going to show up, right? You just don't know when it's going to like change the way you're perceiving something. And that's something that I think I've learned <laughs> very, very deeply. And so the way that shows up, I think, in in work is I have a lot more, I think, patience, you know, for how something unrolls, right? Like before I would be, you know, sort of like, okay, 
here's the plan, here's the strategic plan, here's the tactical plan, right? I'm a strategist, you know, in a lot of ways. And, and I, I believe that the only way to actually create projects or sustain movements or any of those kinds of things is like, I was talking to someone a couple of months ago who said, you know, the most important person in a movement is the person who agrees to wash the dishes after the meeting. You know, it's like, <laughs> you got like, those like, it's like the little tiny things, like those things have to be done, right? And I have more patience for how slowly that unrolls or how, who does the work or who, you know, like, I think I'm having, you know, I'm, I'm reframing, I think my relationship to work and outcome like I've always been a patient advocate, I think to a certain extent, because I work in long-term, like I work in transformation, I work in narrative, right? There's no like- Yeah, there's no shortcut for that. There's no shortcut for that. There's no like, you know, metrics like, oh, what did you do this quarter? Even though they try, people try to impose that. So I, I, I believe in like long-term perseverance, you know, you know, perseverant kind of change. But I think I'm even more, I'm even more focused now on where we are, not just as a community of like advocates and change makers, but as a world, right? We are in the middle of multiple traumas, you know, and I, and I use that word deliberately. I mean, it's like it's very overused these days, right? But we are in the middle of multiple collapses, right? Of geopolitical and socioeconomic collapses. And we haven't yet, like my entire vision for this company, right? And I'll get back to it in a second, is that we have to we have to create new visions, right? For what, like, as things are collapsing, like some of these things should absolutely collapse, right? Our economic system should go away, but our planet is collapsing, right? And there are, we are losing species. We're losing like natural habitats. We're losing these things. And we are in the middle of grief and we don't even know it you know, in a lot of ways, because people are just moving forward. And, you know, there's this real tension uh, between the fact that we don't have a lot of time, right? Like when, you know, we, we're we've way past, you know, sort of that 1.5 degrees Celsius target in climate, right? We're way past that. And we're, we're past, you know, mitigation, we're, we're squarely in adaptation when it comes to climate change. And that's, there's grief to that. And yet we're not processing it collectively. We need to act urgently, but we also need to have like patience and we need to hold each other in community for all these things. And so that tension, that inherent tension, I think is something that I am leaning on the patient side because of personal grief and understanding the contours of that, right? And what that does and, and how that shapes a life and how that shapes a mission. So to sort of get back to sort of, you know, the timeline piece of this is that after sort of, you know, stepping back for six months after, you know, losing mom on what would have been her birthday last year, I sort of recommitted to the company. I recommitted to the center because I was like, you know what, losing someone that, that close to you, it, it shakes the foundation of your life. It shakes everything. And again, like some people don't let themselves go there, right? Because they have to get back to work or they have to, you know, whatever they have, you know, they have things to do. They have food to put on their plate, you know, on, on, their, on their table. And I mean, I do too, but, but I was able to sort of take that time, care for my mom. And then once we lost her process that to a certain extent, and there was a time when I was like, you know what, I'm not coming back to this. I'm going to try to figure out a different way, you know, to sort of fulfill my mission because I was lost basically I was lost, you know, in a lot of ways. And, and I was like, do I have the, do I have the wherewithal? Do I have the resources? Right. Because 
honestly, I'm a woman of color founder who is a senior woman of color, right? I'm like, I'm middle-aged, you know? I'm not a, you know, sort of young, like there's no 30 under 30 happening here. And it's really hard to find resources, right? Where you see like, I just co-wrote a piece with a friend of mine who is Haitian and black. And we wrote this piece that hopefully we're gonna publish soon, but it's basically about how, you know, the humanitarian sectors, the four good sectors are very willing to let women of color who are senior, mid-career senior leaders just go, right? There's no support, there's no funding. Yeah, there's none of that. So I'll like, you know, part of this is like, so I'm in the middle of loss, in the middle of like, all these collapses and there's no one sort of saying, okay, like, you know, yes, we're going to support this. Right. So after 20 years of like demand, you know, demonstrated impact, right. Like if you look at the portfolio, right. It's, it's, it, you know, I'm patting myself on the back here <laughs> to a certain extent, but it's a really good portfolio and that have demonstrated impact, right. Of like what you can do when you center community and story and all those kinds of things um, and why you need to do that right? Like why is narrative? Why is narrative strategy? Why is leadership process? Why is community power? Why are those things ex- absolutely essential to getting us to new visions, right? Of, of how we need to construct our societies. That's absolutely crucial. And yet there's no one sort of saying, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying somebody should come to me and just like pour money into my lap, but like, it's just, it's even like applications and fellowships and things. They're like, you know, hmm, you're not global South. But I think that's an interesting part of it, right? That, you know, we do need people to come and pour money into our lap. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like not, not being facetious about it, but I'm, I'm being serious. Right. Like I think I'm, I'm one of those, those folks who, and, and, you know, me and my team have always said that, like, you know, my boys and stuff for years, like people don't make money, right? Like money is just transported from one place to another. Right. So someone comes along and, you know, in a way they bequeath this money to you, right? Like it can come in the form of like, there's something you have to deliver at the back end of it, right? But it's still someone came in and poured money into your lap, right? And from what I'm hearing, and, you know, we've talked about this offline all the time, right? That sometimes it feels like these systems are rigged. In, in the sense that, you know, those who need it and have also demonstrated the work are often put aside as we sort of chase, like, shiny new object stories, right? Or the other piece I'll offer, and I want to get your thoughts on it, is because we're talking about narrative, right? Like, if you don't fit in the narrative of those with the ability to pour the money into your lap, you won't get the money, right? And so in my in my case, like, you know, and I've run other organizations, I would say like, look, I'm just, to quote Cardi B, I'm just a regular schmegular black guy, <laughs> right? Like, I'm just regular schmegular. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm- we need to we need to quote Cardi B so much more often than we do. Yeah, we have to quote Cardi B whenever we can, right? But absolutely, I don't got nothing weird going on. Like, I don't got blue contacts. I don't have a mohawk. I don't act in any particular way other than be like, "Yo, motherfucker, I'm from Brooklyn," <laughs> right? <laughs> that is not as impactful to some folks as if I put on a persona that lets them say, oh, okay, here's a Black dude that we can get behind, 
right? And if I'm talking about issues that are global, I'm not global enough, right? Because if my my family's from not from here, but I was born here, right? Like I find like a lot of these organizations, they looking for like that dude that's like from Somalia or like Nigeria or something. And I'm not making fun of those people, but I know for a f- like I went- No, they need resources. Like Yeah, they need resources too. Because I, I, I went to this event in um <laughs> in Austin. And I always come back to this event, right? And it's like, it's all the typical crazy white people things, right? Meaning they got to give the land, the, oh, we're on the land of like some indigenous group. And then they got to open up with some sort of chanting and weird white people poetry and and offbeat dancing and drumming and stuff. And I'm sitting and there. None of them are funding indigenous organizations. Oh, no. Absolutely that. None of them are yeah, that's the thing. Like I'm I'm a huge proponent of land acknowledgement. Like let's let's just let's do it. But but please like support these organizations. Yeah, give the like, but also like invite those people there. And I'm and I'm there at this thing with people that you and I both know and love. Like Indy Johar was at, at this thing oh, with I me. Love Indy, like yeah. you know, so and and we both kind of look at each other like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> right. Cause so I say all that to say that these forces, right? These powers that be will constrict you based on their imaginations, right? Their limited imaginations of us. I would say it's not even imagination. I would say it's like a very, you know, sort of set perspective, right? It's a perspective that has been calcified in order to preserve power. And I was having a conversation with a couple of um, friends of mine who are all like, you know, sort of women of color and sort of Jewish progressive women and stuff. And, you know, a number of us have just kind of like exited social media, right? Because when you look at, you know, when you look at what's happening on Twitter or on, you know, Facebook, you know, like I left Facebook a long time ago, but I mean, I still have accounts there. I'm, you know, just holding the space, but I don't engage as much as I used to. And a number of us are like, we're just tired. We're tired of like how, you know, this, this, this capture by white male techno determinist, you know, sort of long-termist effective altruism kind of folks are like taking over these platforms and, you know, it, it's become toxic. I'm absolutely on board with that. Like, I don't want to do something that's going to either, you know, sort of threaten my, you know, sort of peace of mind or threaten me, right? <laughs> like, you know, the trolls are loose on Twitter now, right? But the, the problem is, is that our voices that are always, always hard to cut through the noise as a woman, as a woman of color, as an Asian woman, as, 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 right? It's always hard. And now it's even harder. And they've, that's by design. That's by design, right? And it's because there is a sense of, you know, we don't want to hear this voice. We don't want this voice. We don't, this collective voice, these individual voices. Like, I mean, you look at like what's happening to Carol Cadwallader, you know, and like, you know, that, that case um, where she has, you know, she won her case and now, but now is now liable for like, I think 1.5 million pounds. This is, you know, independent journalist, for example, or, you know, what's happening to, you know, Timnit Gebru, like from Google, like where the, the, the man who, um, I can't remember his name now, Hinton, um, who, you know, sort of crafted this entire division at, at Google now is like in his like whatever 60s or 70s like oh i think we did a bad thing i'm going to resign now out of protest 
I'm wholly in support of people resigning in protest of how, you know, technology can be misused. But you crafted that, you know, like, like, why are you getting like, I'm not giving you roses for that. You know, yes, please resign and make the point, but uh, own up to the responsibility that you were the architect of that. And all of these women of color, like Safia Noble and Meredith Broussard, like have been saying this for years and they get fired. You know, this is the, this is the world that we're living in. And or ignored in like, or, yeah. Yeah. In this in this AI moment, and I think that's a really relevant point that, you know, their work again has been focused on these issues when I think I'm not gonna say fringe, but it wasn't like generative AI was not as pop cultured in, in a moment as it is now, right? And so now that I'm seeing mainstream news outlets, right, like a CNN and all the rest kind of bringing people on to talk about this they're still not bringing on those women, right? Like they're- No, God, no, not at all. They're they're still talking to, again, the, their perspective of like the wizened gray beard that kind of looks like Gandalf to kind of come out there and give us the warning. But their warning isn't even based in the reality of where we are right now. And it's, it's not based in lived experience either. It's like all the harms that they're, t- first of all, they're not touching on the harms that, women, non-binary folks, you know, et cetera, et cetera, black folks that actually experience. It's not based in that, right? They're not actually talking about those harms that are actually happening right now that have been happening for a really long time, right? And you look at the difference, like look at the difference between the way, say, you know, when I watched the, the congressional hearing where Mark Zuckerberg was, you know, testifying versus the head of uh, TikTok, I can't remember his name right now, the racism on display, like I'm not a huge proponent of TikTok, I'm not a huge proponent of Facebook, but the way, you know, sort of that that hearing went was horrifyingly racist, right? And so you see that this, and that is exponential. So as, as these platforms change and morph and warp, right, in a lot of ways, that warping is by design, it is aimed at giving a very particular group of people who already have power and hold the resources more and more power. And it's meant to sort of marginalize us further, right? I mean, that's reductive, but that's kind of the trend that's happening. And into that, there are a number of us who are trying to step in and say, okay, we have lived experience. We have professional experience. We have solutions. I'm not about solutionism, but let's just call it solutions right now. We have solutions. We have models. We have the scope, the idea, the scale, um, the communities, right? We have all of those things. And we've been doing this, like in my case, I've been doing this for 20 years, right? Like, I mean, you know, since I left the law, being in sort of the social good, whatever, in many different forms, right? Executive director, consultant, social enterprise founder, builder, architect, blah, blah, blah. All of these things, right? And into this, I step and I say, okay, I have this model, right? I'm launching it. Are you going to fund me? And then I turn around and I see, oh, well, that white-led organization just got funded, right? Or that 20-year-old just got funded. We, we need, yes. Should we support youth-led organizations? Yes. Should we support new? Yes. I'm not saying that we should not be funding organizations that are led by, well, I mean, maybe not 20-year-olds, but, but yes, like there is enough funding to like fund a lot of us, right? There's more than enough 
funding. <laughs> There's more than enough. There's more than enough, right? Whether it's philanthropic or impact investing and blah, blah, blah. Like all these things I'm talking about are very hyper capitalist. And we can talk about that. Like using the tools of the oppressors, give me the tool of the oppressor uh, so I can like dismantle the oppression. But, you know, this is what, this is the water that we're swimming in, right? Which is exponential, you know, disenfranchisement of women and women of color and you know again for lack of a better term bipoc communities from owning our own platforms from owning the means of production from you know telling our stories etc 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 and it's happening everywhere and it is in like you know sort of in a post 2020 world when all those promises were made right following the murder of George Floyd all those promises were made like DEI, you know, whatever it's a construct, like, you no, know, let me, let me welcome you into the power structure. There's DEI, there's like funding. There's like, Oh, we're going to hire more, you know, women of color into leadership. You know, we're going to fund your things. Very little of that has changed. And now we're in the middle of backlash, like massive backlash, right? Where like books are being banned, written by black authors, you know, like it's, it's in every realm. It's in media, it's in philanthropy, it's in, technology, it's in, you know, politics, it's in all these, every single realm, and every single realm that's collapsing, right? People of color who've been at the brunt, like this is what we talk about when we talk about community-led transformation, every single one where we have borne, right, the, the, um, the effects of collapse, we know, because we've had to adapt, right? We've had to adapt. And again, I'm, I'm speaking from privilege. Like I'm sitting here in the middle of New York City. I am like, you know, I, I was born into a socioeconomically comfortable, you know, family, community, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, okay. I'm, not, I'm not apologizing for that. Like I'm, 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 <laughs> I use my privilege, I think, I hope, in very, like hopefully very generative ways. But what I'm saying is that if I am feeling this, if I am feeling this, imagine what other people who don't have my privileges, imagine what they're feeling. But I think that's a that's a critical point, right? Like, because so 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 much of, of these conversations and these challenges we face are also language-based, right? In the sense that we're trying to come up with language and terms and ideas that can also be easily, not maybe not easily not the right word, but adaptable to the challenges that we are facing, right? So our, the way in which we're putting this together has to meet the challenge on the other side, right? And the, the challenge on the other side is they, they have an easy job, right? Like it's very easy to be like reductive and evil. Right. Like you're sort of playing on people's base fears and established um, racism and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, when you're creating and forming the counter story to that, it's much more of a of a challenge in, in the way I think about things. Right. See, I don't I don't believe in counter narratives. I don't believe in counter narratives as a strategy. Explain that. Sure. So, so I've been working in, in sort of narrative shift for a very long time. And, and one of the things I think I've learned is that, yes, I, I think, do you have to counter the narrative of, you know, people who are trying to 
preserve power and using language and framing and story to preserve that power, yes, you absolutely, you do need to counter that. So it's, I'm, not, I'm not completely dismissing it. The problem is when you use that as your leading frame, you are not building your own story. You're not building your own vision, right? And I think that, you know, the people who are trying to counter that, trying to fight it, trying to resist it, whether you want to call them the left or the progressives or whoever, right? However you want to categorize that group of people. I think a lot of these definitions that we used to, like I used to call myself the leftist. And now when I look at the inherent misogyny and racism that you often find in left groups, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm that anymore. Or maybe I am and I just don't need the label. But the group of people who is trying to counter or resist also needs to build new vision. Like that's what's missing here. Right. And I think that, so I don't believe, I believe that counter counter narrative is a tactic that is necessary. It's a step, but transformation doesn't happen simply because you're resisting at all. Transformation, like transformational change, social transformation, community transformation happens because you know what you're moving towards. You have the imagination, you have built that vision and you've built the means, right? You have the, the whether it's sort of the, the community around you or the platform on which to do it. I'm using platform in many different ways. You have the poetry of new language, right? You have the, the, the you have imagination, right? And not imagination, that stupid marketing reductive way that we often use that. I'm talking about actual sort of like imagination where you have collectively come together and said, this is what we want. This is what we need. And that is not found in counter narratives. That's found in stories that we create ourselves. And I think that's probably like not as schooled. I'm going to use poor framing, right? Because what, what frustrates me about like, if you want to call it left conversations or progressive conversations, whatever we want to use, particularly when we're working through these issues is like when we were talking about like privilege, right? Like I'm struggle with those kind of words and language, right? Because to the extent that we have them, I don't, I don't know if it matters, right? Like, I'm, and I'm, and I'm not totally being clear, but I, I'm not sure if we're, if we have collectively made a good distinction between like privilege and benefit, right? Yeah, no, I, I don't think we have either. Like I often say, like for me, like one of the examples I give is like, yeah, I, I benefit all the time from being like male, right? And moving in spaces as a male. But what I found is like, when people talk about like male privilege, like they just throw black dudes in with white dudes, right? It's just like, oh, you all have male privilege. I'm like, not really, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I benefit from being male, but I don't have the privilege of like white males, right? They move in different spaces of, of complete abject failure failing up, right? I don't know no brothers that do that shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True enough. But but I think I think that that's where again, that's where the tension lies and that's where why I have a job, I suppose, is that you know, there is preserve like you were saying earlier, preserving power is once you have it, it's easier <laughs> to preserve it. Getting power, collecting power, cultivating power, those are different things, right? And and, and, and the way language plays in that and the way story plays in that is, you know, is, is a deep, deep focus of mine. It's a deep focus of this, you know, center that I'm trying to build. That's what we're sort of like thinking about. And it's, there's a tension, right, between 
inviting people in to understand where they fit, right, on a privilege or power spectrum by using very reductive language. Like, oh, those immigrants are coming to take your jobs. Like that, yeah, that hits your fear center. So what is, you know, what's the story that we need to be telling? It's a story of complexity and nuance and community and love and all those concepts. But the way we often do it on the quote unquote left or progressives or whatever is we haven't quite figured it out, right? Like, you know, people are use messaging frames or things like that that don't hit. They are sort of like, you know, focus grouped, you know, to a certain extent, and it doesn't feel authentic. Not that immigrants are coming to take your jobs is, but it hits a like that lizard brain, right? And we haven't quite figured out, I think, often how to hit that lizard brain in a, in, in a way. There are certain people who've absolutely done it right? There are people who know how to use, you know, language and poetry and all those kinds of things. And often like my, the most, I think, effective stories that I've been involved with are all stories that are told by filmmakers or artists who are deep in community or sort of like, you know, are are connected to and and the visual language and the, the very simple stories that are coming from people who are experiencing like moments of pain and how they get through that pain, not in a lifetime way, but like really thinking through like how, you know, how you persevere, just like my story of like, you know, I'm in the middle of, I'm in the middle of a massive grief cycle, right? And that's a story that is forming the way I think about my relationship to mission, my relationship to the world, right? And that's a story that I think is, you know, that needs to be told. I often like, it's, it's been, I've never really told my story because I always thought that when you do the work of human rights or you're working with communities who are quote unquote lesser privileged or stuff, that if you're making yourself the story, you're doing it wrong, right? You're centering yourself. You're trying to be like a rock star. I remember a long time ago, I was invited to be like a social innovation rock star. I'm like, what is that? Like these, you know, sort of, you don't need to like, there are no heroes here, right? There's no individual heroes. There shouldn't be. But again, like the older I've gotten and the more I look at sort of the people coming behind me and how I lower that sort of like open that door behind me to let other people in. I'm like, I can't do that unless I tell my story. Like you have to model behavior. You have to model possibility. The story is critical, right? The story is absolutely critical. And while we are modeling new leadership um, ways and traits and and talents, you know, there's still a lot of the structure of of leadership and in that modeling of behavior that you described that I think is is still somewhat essential. I think it's crucial. And I think I think it's crucial but to get to your last point is that I don't think we necessarily have the language for it yet. We don't have the language at, at ready, right? So what so what you're seeing on the other side is very, you know, practiced, reductive patient like they've been they've been mounting you know they what i'm saying like it let's just call them the right wing for the moment or the authoritarians or you know whatever. conservative assholes they've been, they've been mounting these campaigns and these tactics and these strategies for decades right like as soon as roe v wade like was decided in 1973 they mobilized right and they got they got it taken down it, it took a little while but they got it taken down and they they knew like how to do it okay great now we know how to do it. We do on our side. We know how to do it. Again, the funding is going to the wrong places. 
it just did. The funding's going to wrong places, the resourcing, the spotlight. It's getting a little better, but we're in the middle of backlash. And what I'm telling you is like, you know, I'm talking to a number of women of color leaders who are absolutely fantastic. We're just like, I am tired. I am tired of fighting this fight. And this is what is really concerning me. And which is why I think, you know, sort of went again, when I was like at that moment, right after I lost my mom, I'm just like, what am I doing? I should just go get a cushy job with health insurance and blah, blah, you know? And I was on what would have been her birthday last year. I'm just like, this is her legacy too. You know, this is my legacy. Do I individually need to take the fight on? Like I've been doing this for a long time. I'm not sure. However, like if we all leave, if we all leave the fight, if we all say we're tired, which we are, and anybody who wants to leave, any woman of color who wants to leave, I'm going to say, thank you. And what can I do to support your transition out of this? Like, that's it, because that's a very valid decision. But for me, I was like, you know what? I need to build this company. Like, this is what, this is what a year later, I'm like, I need to build this company. And so like at the 15 year mark of being a social entrepreneur, which is not a natural state for me, I don't think in a lot of ways, but of being an entrepreneur and building this on the 15th anniversary, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start writing a new concept note. So the original plan still makes sense, but now I'm just like, okay, we're in a different time. And I don't know what 2024 is going to bring. I don't know, like, is Modi going to be out? Is, you know, Bolsonaro, thank God, but like, who's going to be out? Who's going to be in? Like what, where does power lie? Are we, are we all going to be just using chat GPT to like create, you know, we, we don't, we don't know where power is, who's going to be sort of seizing power or taking power, consolidating power. All I know is that it's, it's really important for us to sort of use our stories in new forms of leadership, new forms of story, new forms of language, new forms of like sort of expression, right? Like this is where we're going to find imagination, That's our job now. And that's why I think that it's kind of my job to build this company. I don't know if it's my job to run this company for the next 10 years. That's, that's still out (laughs) right now. That I don't know. But that's um, another part of the question. (laughs) That's another part of the question. I do know that I need to build it and build it and sort of like, and, and see it, you know, into the world, because I think it's a model that needs to exist. This sort of hybrid doesn't exist in the world. What I'm trying to do with it is I think sort of, I mean, I'm not the only, like, you know, this is not the only answer. This is not the end all be all, right? It's, um, it's one, it's one answer, one model. And, and it's, a, it's a model that is counter to like, you know, again, the entire discussion right now that I'm in, I'm in so many discussions about natural language, you know, modeling and, and processing rather, and, you know, large language models and generative AI and it, and I'm just like, okay, Yes, absolutely. We absolutely need to talk about that. And I will be in the thick of that, especially in terms of ethics and like community power. But also sometimes it's like as simple as we need to be in community with each other. Like we need to be face to face. We need to talk to each other. And there's a spectrum of things that we can do in order to move past where we are right now into communities and societies that support us being able to breathe. (laughs) I mean, metaphorically and very, you know, sort of literally, that's what we need to do. And so that's why I've like, you know, I'm in the middle what I'm doing right now is rewriting the concept note. And it's basically what I'm doing with this company is do this enterprise is what we're calling it now is like we're building the narrative infrastructure, we're creating the narrative infrastructure for social for community led social transformation, and everything that 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 entails. And I think to your point, or or what 
what I'm, I'm really left with as I, as I think about this is that there doesn't have to be the one thing, right? Like, like no, no organization, no person is going to be the solution to the overlapping complex and entangled challenges that we face. There's room for many contributors to play a role in these shifts, right? Because the shifts, they happen in myriad, on myriad levels, in myriad ways anyway, right? Not only is there room, there's necessity, right? It is essential. Like we need to be working every single avenue and angle that we have. We need to be supporting a lot more people. Not not everybody wants to start their own thing. It's very hard. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's really hard. And not everybody should. And not everybody should. And not everybody should be required. Like I remember this like back like 12, 15 years ago, everyone was like, everyone should be a social entrepreneur. Like why? You know, it was like this whole push to like get, you know, sort of poor women to be social entrepreneurs and like you know what they want? They just want an income. You know, they just want a job. You know, like, you know, not everybody has to build something and not, and we should not like, that's what I'm doing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only way to do it. Sometimes we need the people and they should be compensated for this, but sometimes we need the people to wash the dishes after the meeting. Like that is, that is noble work. It's essential work. And sometimes, yeah, that is, that is what needs to be done. So we need across the spectrum we need people you know sort of doing every piece of it like i think about i was talking uh, a few weeks ago about act up you know that movement that started in the 80s and it's it's one of the it's one of the groups one of the movements that we've highlighted so i have this uh, we talked about this the first time you and i talked on your podcast about the 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 leadership framework that i developed right and we evidenced the leadership framework. It's called, you know, TC leadership, transformational change leadership. And one of the groups that we highlighted about, you know, who was transformative was ACT UP. And they they used every single tool in their toolbox. They used every single, from story to message to logo to like protest to marches, every single thing that they could do, they did it and they did it well, right? And they moved, they moved the needle in a big way on policy, on you know, healthcare on, on perception, right. Of the community of all those things, even within, even with internal conflicts, because that's what, I mean, I think that's what we have. We don't move in lockstep and that's a, that has to be a power, right. That, that like we are a big tent, right. Of, you know, people who are moving towards transformation or progress, whatever. And that's a strength. And I don't think we should be, I think the messy, chaotic nature of change should be embraced. Like yeah, it's not just my company. It's not just one solution. It's not just one. It's like, oh, now we should all be doing pop culture work or now we should all be talking about AI. No, no, no. We need to talk about all of it, right? And we need to talk about all of it in a deep, nuanced, complex way that is accessible, right? Like stop using jargon. Stop using whatever. How do you do it? And like, I fall into that. Sometimes I use jargon, but because it's like, I work in the humanitarian sector. Everything's an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I'm like, what are you talking about? But, you know, how do you open the door to a number of people to come in? Because that's not happening. And the people who are consolidating power are welcoming people in, you know? I mean, that's why people are like, why Why do brown communities and black communities work, you know, vote for the conservatives? I'm like, because they talk to them, <laughs> you know? Because they have, you know, long-term strategies of like being in community. Why are we not doing that? We're supposed to be community led. Like, what's happening here, right? And so, you know, there are 
I am building my company because I believe that this model needs to be out there. And we need to sort of like, also because, you know, it's a small group of us who think about narrative shift as a driver of transformation. I want that. I want narrative change to be way more popular than it is across the globe. Like that's absolutely, and we need to rethink what leadership is and we need to rethink power. That's why I'm building this company. But do we need many, many, many other efforts? Yes. We need many movements, all of those things. The more we can build, the better off our chances will be to defeat defeat clearly the conservatives. Defeat and, and build what we need next because we're not doing that, right? We need we need to build what's next. And you talked about Indijohar. Like I think about, you know, what uh, Emmy Kaur is doing in England. I think about, you know, what Ingrid LaFleur is trying to do. I think about what Indy Johar is trying to do. Like there are all these people, right, who really are thinking through what is next. What, how do we build new economic systems, new systems of like, how do we like eradicate borders? You know, how do we, you know, how do we think through the future of work? How do we think through the healthcare and all of those different things? There are so many people who are doing this. And it's, that's where, that's why I keep going. This is where I find hope. You know, there's so many people doing beautiful, beautiful work. We need to support it. Like it's really comes, like it, it, the time is now really. Yeah, we are, we are focused and galvanized and I'm, I'm equally thankful that so many of the folks that you mentioned and named are, are friends, collaborators, as, as Indy likes to say, conspirators um, to, to work. Comrades. To work together, <laughs> comrades in, in arms. And so looking at the time, I got to get to the, we're only going to do one final segment of the show, um, which is going to be the drop that I promised. Um, I love the drop. And I'm going to go first real quick. My drop is a new record that was released just this past Friday. Friday, as of us re recording this, this will be released later. So don't look at it as a chronological exercise. But at the time of recording, um, this album came out last Friday. It's my favorite band, Dave Matthews Band, and their new album, Walk Around the Moon which I've probably listened to now at least 10, 15 times. I'll probably listen to it another 2,000 times um, between now and whenever whenever this ends. And so highly recommend it. I think this is their 10th studio album. So go out there and grab Dave Matthews' latest record, Walk Around the Moon. That's my drop for the week. That's wonderful. I admit something that I've actually never listened to the Dave Matthews band. Gotta listen to Dave Matthews band. Okay. I don't even, I wouldn't even know, like if you should like I wouldn't even know the voices. Isn't that crazy? I am uh I have converted I'm not gonna do this with you, so don't worry, you're not gonna okay. be garage with Dave Matthews band <laughs> stuff. But but I have happily converted so many people to Dave Matthews. It's crazy. And what happens is that they're a band that has been around for so long that people have a very strong opinion about Dave Matthews. And I found that they typically have not listened to his music and they're judging the band by the fans. And that's easy to dismiss the music if you judge it by the fans, because the fans are a lot of assholes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, okay. I've been I've been to almost 60 shows. Oh, wow. And, you know, I go with my crew. And, you know, Dave Matthews band, a lot of the fans are white. Right, which is not uh, that's not instinctively a problem, but it does set the tone, right? And me and my boys, not white, right? Like we're we're like four to maybe 
yeah, mostly four black dudes and some others that go to these shows. So we stand out. But the music is is incredible. It's been life-changing for me. And I'm going to speak for my boys who I know listen to the show. And since we talk about Dave probably every day, they would agree. <laughs> they would agree with this assessment, right? But Dave Matthews is, a, is an awesome band, and I definitely recommend their music. But I understand where you're coming from to not be familiar with it. So you're not alone in that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not I'm not even saying like I'm re- rejecting it. I just have never heard it. Yeah, yeah. I think I missed that train a long time ago. Okay, so I actually have a couple of drops for you. I wasn't going to do this because I wasn't thinking about music as a drop, but I have two drops for you, except I'm going to add one because I've just, if you're talking, if we're talking about music, I just started listening to this new album that I think wasn't that well-reviewed, but who cares about reviewers? Um, it's Brian Eno and Fred again, like did a collaboration. And Fred again is sort of DJ and musician who sort of, he's an EDM, you know, musician. And I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you were able to go to the show. There was a Madison Square Garden show. There was, he did it with like Fortet and uh, Skrillex and like all these like EDM folks. It's like real, it's really cool. They did like these massive rave in Times Square. But it, this is a very quiet sort of concept contemplative almost like cocteau twinsy a friend of mine said they're like the cocteau twins it's really beautiful and it's like it's really peaceful and it just kind of unrolls really again it unrolls patiently and it's a beautiful album and fred again did a tiny desk concert for npr that is gorgeous i love those tiny desk concerts so i'm just i'll, I'll drop yeah, tiny desk rock yes yeah, so good so um okay so that that's my music recommendation but the ones i was thinking about i have one serious and one not serious and the serious one is i just finished this book by ed young who's um, a journalist and writer it's called an immense world it's stunning it's a book about the way different species including our own perceive the world right so this is constant Umwelt, which is like how we perceive the world. And he sort of create he, he does it by sense, like sight, sound, touch, smell, and talks about all these different sort of animals and, and humans and the way we things, and he creates a sort of equality among us, right? So, I mean, as I was thinking about, you know, sort of the species that we're losing to climate change, as we're thinking about this, he creates this gorgeous sort of tapestry of where we fit in and why our perception in some ways is really good, in some ways is not, in some ways, you know, it's like, it's not as, as keen, right, as, as other animals. And he just, he animates these animals in a way that is just so beautiful and creates this gorgeous view of what our world is before we lose it. And I think it's such a beautiful book and I want everybody to read it. It's okay. beautiful. <laughs> so that's my serious one. And my not serious one is, I don't know if you've seen this, but have you seen The Law According to Lydia Poet? It's an Italian Netflix show, right? And it's there's something really silly about it. It's a, it's a mystery show to a certain extent, and the mysteries aren't that great, whatever. But it's so much fun. Yeah, it, it is. It's you know, it's about it's based on a true story. Lydia Poet was the first woman called to the bar in Italy as an attorney, and within two weeks she was disbarred simply for being. A woman. A woman. <laughs> and as a as a as an attorney and a member of the bar myself, like that was my education. I just relate so hard to this show in a lot of ways. And she's all she's fabulous and the man is gore the men are gorgeous and you know the clothes the costume is in it's set in eighteen eighty. Yeah, the costume design and the set design is fantastic. It's oh, a really, it's really good stunning. Show. Everything about this. The mysteries aren't great, but everything else about this show is so 
so good and so much fun. And the woman playing Lydia Poet is so good. Yeah. So just binge that like on a Saturday. It's so great. Those are all, and it's, and it's not overly long too. I think it's like six episodes, I think. Maybe it's eight, but I think it's six. I think it's like eight, it's eight episodes of like, you know, 45, 50 minutes each. And they're just, they're so much fun and they're beautiful to look at. And it's like, it's woman power. It's a, it's a fun, it's a fun Netflix watch. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It is. And yeah. So those are my, those are my recommendations. Those are great drops. And, you know, we never have enough time, you and I, but we did the best we could. <laughs> and we, we've, and we've given, I think, all of the listeners something to really think about and, and chew over. And, you know, I can't thank you enough for your decade plus of, of friendship and counsel and for this moment of, of sharing um, the deep dive stage, quote unquote, stage with me once again. So thank you so much, Lena, for being on the show with me. Thank you so much. I can't wait for the next time. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.